Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. We've heard the term navigating in uncharted waters. My guest today literally excels at this and learned to do so over a 40 plus year career with the United States Coast Guard, a trailblazer, a member of the third class of the academy that even had women. She's the first woman to command an icebreaker on the Great Lakes and to lead a U.S. Armed Forces Service Academy. She served 12 years at sea, commanding two ships and led large Coast Guard organizations in times of crisis and complexity. In 2012, Newsweek's The Daily Beast named her one of their 150 women who shaped the world. She finished her career as the first woman assigned as deputy commandant for a mission support, directing one of the Coast Guard's largest enterprises. And in 2021, published an amazing leadership book, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass. I'm moved by her and thrilled we have a chance to get to know her. I am honored to welcome Vice Admiral Sandy Sows to say it skillfully. Sandy, what a delight. Thank you for joining me. And thank you very much, Molly, for having me. I sure hope I can say it skillfully today. Well, I know you have. I peeked into your book, which is fabulous. Uh, Before we get started, have to do a public thank you as well to our mutual friend, Tim Fitzpatrick for our paths crossing. And he was pretty much gushing about you and no surprise. Um, So your world is one most of us likely don't have a lot of insight Uh, So I'm really jazzed for so much for us to learn. And uh, I appreciate starting at the very beginning of the Sandy Epic journey um, and take us through your story. Well, the beginning uh, (laughs) starts with childhood, but I'm going to hold off on that. But I will mention that my core values were set in my childhood and you are you are your core values. They form your character. They're the foundation on which your character builds over time. So my parents instilled my core values. They instilled honesty and humility, two core values. My coaches, mentors, teachers, they instilled um, hard work and perseverance. And my experiences reinforced those core values. So my book is about leading with character. And my character was instilled through those core values when I was young. So to start there, and I also want to thank you for calling out Tim Fitzpatrick. Uh, I know it's not my early story. It comes later when I was superintendent at the Coast Guard Academy, when 40 years after those childhood core values were installed, I ended up coming back to my alma mater to be the superintendent or president of that college, a small college for the Coast Guard. And Tim Fitzpatrick was our new athletic director. And I have to say that of those people who mentored me and paved the way for me and on whose shoulders I stood, Tim Fitzpatrick came into the Coast Guard Academy at a time with me when the outgoing athletic director had had been advocating that we need to, you know, reduce varsity sports, we need to 
they're too expensive. We can't maintain this kind of a curriculum. And Tim said, no, I'm going to honor Title IX, which is the law passed in 1972 that guaranteed equal opportunity in education to girls and women. And we're going to actually increase sports. We're going to go out and we're going to fundraise and talk about saying it skillfully. Tim knows how to make an argument for um, investments and, uh, and fundraising. And we raised money and we brought women's lacrosse up from a club sport to a varsity sport. And I'm here to tell you, our women cadets are stronger, more powerful, and more capable leaders because of what Tim did to promote women's athletics at the Coast Guard Academy when other people thought it was time to diminish that area. So I thank people like Tim, who when I was young, advocated for me. So when I went to high school, I started in in 1974, to get back to my story, Title IX had been passed two years earlier. So I came into high school at a time when they were assigning coaches to women's girls sports teams. Before that, they were not uh, assigned a coach. It was just to pick up a club sport. And I had a chance to um, help me develop from a very, very shy, um, unconfident young girl into somebody more confident and capable because I was athletic, but wasn't really sure where I fit in the sports arena. And I started out with track and my track coach really mentored me. He helped me find my niche. He helped me discover where I had strengths uh, that I could pursue. Cause I certainly had a lot of weaknesses. I tried running and I wasn't fast enough. I was too tall. I tried high jumping, but I didn't have enough vertical lift. And finally, I found my niche with a shot put in the discus throw. And it's because uh, my coach believed in me and didn't quit on me when I couldn't run fast enough or jump high enough. He found something that my athletic ability matched with. So he looked for a way to help me achieve my full potential. So I really, as I look at my story, I wanted to give a little bit of that early history of how your core values, the character you develop through those who mentor you, who, who teach you, who help guide you, who hold you accountable at a young age to help you develop those core values and mature your, your leadership at a young age, that really sets you up. And I was blessed for that because I was a very average young girl who was handicapped by my withdrawn, shy personality and was given opportunities to break through some of that by people who cared about me. And I went to the Coast Guard Academy. Uh, it was a very, very hard. There's a longer story there, but I wasn't the smartest, <laughs> fastest or best looking. And when you get into the uh, top college, you're even if you did well in high school, you're still um, very average amongst all the other top people who were there. So I was constantly um, rendered humble by the people I was with who are, were of the highest caliber. But once again, at the Coast Guard Academy, even though it was very hard, I was a third class of women. We had a um, you know 60% attrition rate for women. 30 came into my class and only 10 of us graduated. And some of the men didn't think we belong there. There were still instructors, um, coaches who believed in us women and helped us to succeed. So that by the time I graduated, thank goodness, because that was a struggle <laughs> and went off into my career as an ensign, I think I had the strength to 
work hard and persevere, going back to those core values, to get through some of those hard times in a, in a 40 year career, because uh, it never really got easy because I graduated the academy. That was hard. Went off to my first assignment on an icebreaker, sailed to Antarctica. That was hard being the one of the first women on the ship and having to learn a new job. And every two or three years in the Coast Guard, like all the armed forces, we rotate jobs. So you never really get, just when you're getting good at something and confident, you're moved on to another assignment to keep building your leadership skills and broadening you. So I constantly faced inflection points that, um, that, uh, and then, and then you do get used to that, though. You do get used to if you move and you're stu- and struck with challenges at every around every bend, you do get used to that. And it becomes your your normal that you're always having to adapt, adjust and be agile. And I think those are real watchwords for people because nothing's ever going to be handed to you on a silver platter where you get exactly what you think you want and what. Um, you think's best for you, someone's going to throw you a curveball to get back to a sports analogy. And you're going to have to adjust, adapt, and be agile to meet, meet that ball where it's coming and not just say, I want a perfect pitch. And there's people out there who uh, go through life demanding the perfect pitch, or they're not going to swing the bat. And I always swung the bat at anything that came within reason. Now, sometimes that's not good because it's obviously um, too high or too low, but I always felt like going for it was the way to go. And that the, um, the times that you don't go for it, you're going to miss every time, right? Cause you're not even trying. So I had some inflection points in my career. Uh, when I was very young, I came off of six straight years of sea duty and was assigned as, uh, the military aide to the secretary of transportation and the coast guard was in transportation at that time. And I got to see the whole of government from the top down in this very, very um, special position of um, access. And it made me realize the Coast Guard, as big as the Coast Guard was to me, just a young, very um, entry-level worker at the time still, um, the Coast Guard was small by comparison of the whole Department of Transportation, which was small if you look at the whole of government. So kind of another way of being rendered humble, not in a personal manner, but in a um, professional manner, looking at how small of a piece of the overall governmental picture the Coast Guard was, which I thought was the greatest organization ever, and I still do. But you realize that it's um, but one part of a bigger picture and how important every piece of that picture is. I really appreciate your humility and just calling it like it is, wasn't the best at this or smartest at that. And, you know, I, I appreciate it. Sounds like your parents were super, super successful. What was it like with siblings in the family dynamic? I was raised as the oldest of four kids. I had three brothers and they were, we were right in a row. All of us kids were within four years, uh, you know, one year apart. So I was a tomboy <laughs> and my parents taught, treated me just like they did my brothers. So uh, in fact, I, uh, my mom, to save money, we came from a modest family. Um, she knew I was a tomboy, so she'd buy me boys' clothes, and then I'd just pass those down to the next kid. Why waste? You have one girl. She's the oldest. Why buy special clothes when you're all running around the yard anyway, getting dirty? <laughs> and most of the kids in the neighborhood were boys. So, yeah, it was really uh, great to be athletic. I think that even though I was shy and quiet, 
I think uh, learning to work with boys and knowing how they think and act really helped me. And I never thought of this when I was uh, starting out until I got into the Coast Guard Academy and realized that in a mostly male environment, and there were only 5% of us women at the time that I came in with a third class of, of, of women, only 5% of uh, the Corps of Cadets of 1,000. So being the one of the only or the first or the only woman never bothered me. And I really credit it to the fact that I had three brothers and a lot of male influencers and mentors and parents that didn't treat me differently and didn't tell me I had to take a different tack than my brothers because I was a girl. That's such a huge gift. And I just want to help for listeners because I think some of this, you know, women go to school, like, you know, there's folks who had a, you know, pioneer for us. And so Sandy, can you talk about just being, you know, you know, one, five percent. When you go in and you see that sea of different and you see people who don't think that you belong, what what happened for you? Like, how did you personally stay high, believe in yourself or did you not believe in yourself? I mean, I kind of want to go there to some of the emotions of what it was like. Did you realize how pioneering you were at the time? I mean, it's easy to look back now. So I'm, I'm just really curious about that in the moment experience. Oh no, when I, you're exactly right. And I learned this from writing my book. I had to reflect back on my career from the very beginning when I started out as a cadet. And no, I never realized at the time um, what it was like um, that I was pioneering. (laughs) I'd always been the only girl in a family of boys, so to speak. So, it, I always tried to escape being the first. I didn't want to be singled out as a woman Coast Guard officer or a woman cadet. I wanted to just be a cadet or be an officer. And, uh, and, and likewise, when I was at the academy, I wasn't sure I wanted to stay with the Coast Guard, even though it was really, really hard. And even though I was passionate about going to the Coast Guard, and there's a whole story behind that, too. <laughs> All of it's in the book if you don't get to, if we don't get to it here. I didn't uh, think I was going to stay and make a Coast Guard career. I just thought I was going to stay and get my education, do my five years of obligated service because the academy education was was fully funded. And uh, yeah, so it was only as I got a little more mature and could reflect back with some appreciation that I realized, wow, I had been um, a pioneer and the first in so many things. But at the time, I took it for granted and I was trying to escape it. And I matured um, probably about eight years into my career. So say my late 20s, I realized that I had to embrace being the first because I could not run it, couldn't escape it. Because in the military, you promote according to your time in service, so to speak. And you really can't get ahead or behind. Um, And and, uh, that makes it simplified, but in in the bottom line. So I realized then that I had to take this uh, burden of being the first and make it an opportunity to showcase my crew, the people who worked with me, because it wasn't me, because I was very humble, uh, well, just shy, and I didn't want to be the center of attention. So I think my my humility kind of came from my shyness. (laughs) And I was trying to avoid the spotlight. And so I redirected that spotlight onto my crew, the people who are supporting you, who are doing the work, and you might be the leader but it's the team that's getting the work done. And so I said, okay, I need to focus this energy that I'm getting from the media and the tension of being the first 
back down to the crew, showcase and spotlight them, put the Coast Guard in a good light and show how great the Coast Guard is to have given a young woman like me all this leadership responsibility and opportunity at such a young age. And, uh, and hey, it's all about the Coast Guard and the team that we develop and this wonderful service of dedicated people. Sandy, talk about, you know, it's easy to have everything be so great, you know, and we all know that there's a lot of not great. So I'm particularly keen, the, maybe the leadership examples you learned from that weren't great, if there were ones that weren't great, in contrast with ones, the ones that were spectacular, because I can tell you're very formative, you're soaking it all in. And I, I'm really wondering uh, some of those specific moments of, wow, never want to do it that way, or wow, I want to aspire to be this way. Oh my goodness. I um, always coach younger people who I'm mentoring or even peers. I think there's a, um, a fallacy that mentors have to be junior, to, uh, senior to you. You can, um, you can be mentored by junior people, I think, who are very um, specialized and who are good leaders or who know their business really well. A senior person can be mentored. But I, but I think typically we think of a mentoring relationship as um, somebody you're looking after. But um, yeah, so looking up, I had some poor leadership and I always told those that I mentored at any level, hang in there because you're going to learn so much from those leaders who aren't really that good or who have some good points, but a lot of bad points. And I tell them, number one, it's your job to get along with that leader somehow as a junior person. It's your job to find a way to get along with that leader and take the interest in um, humbling yourself to say, hey, yeah, this boss should be doing a better job leading me, but I'm gonna try to see what I can do to understand this boss well enough to where my life is better and I can achieve my potential even under a boss that's, that's not a good leader. So I tell them that's number one. And number two, you're going to learn so much um, about what you don't want to do when you get to the next level by those bosses who aren't good leaders. And so, yeah, it might not be a, a pleasant time while you have a bad leader. And I recognize that in the military, in the Coast Guard, somebody always transfers. So if the workplace environment isn't good, if you've got a bad leader, either that leader or you are going to transfer and it's going to, this too will pass. <laughs> so that's what I tell people too. And then take all those lessons that you learn that you don't ever want to do to somebody else, leadership styles, you don't want to impose on somebody and make sure that you become a better leader because of that bad experience. So don't re replicate it down on somebody else. And that's, there's no excuse for that. And the good leaders, I always tell them the third piece is, hey, we all love having good leaders, but you know what? Um, I, I used to take the good leaders kind of for granted. I learned a lot from them, but um, don't fall into the, the trap of thinking that uh, this is the only way to, to, to learn is if you have a good leader. And if you don't, there's no way you can succeed um, because you're going to learn a lot from those good leaders that you have too, and you're going to have a mix of them. So I tried to always give a positive message. And you, you have to have that. Now, I think that there's times when people are in a job where there's going to be, you know, indeterminate time where they've got a bad leader and that makes it really harder. I think that's a different story. But generally speaking, starting out with a positive attitude and trying to create your own fate instead of saying, if I've got this bad boss, I can never succeed. 
So I'll give a short story because I think people relate well to stories <laughs> and there's a lot of them to tell, but I was the first woman to command a ship ever on the Great Lakes. And I just come from that job as the military aide to the secretary of transportation where the Coast Guard was uh, assigned at the time. It's back in 1990 for context. And this boss uh, that I had up there in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, where the icebreaker was stationed, I got up there, I had the change of command, and the media was interested in the fact that here's the first woman to command this icebreaker, and there was a spotlight on me. And this old uh, senior leader who was my boss didn't think women should be in the Coast Guard anyway, because he was really an older guy, even back in the 1990s, and before things started to change for the better for women. He looked at me after that change of command ceremony. And he said, you're just the secretary's fair haired golden girl. We'll see how long you last. And he proceeded to make it really hard on me when it was already a challenge to take over a ship with 17 men. <laughs> there were no other women. And even though I was the leader, you're still trying to build trust and earn respect with your, your crew so that you can accomplish your mission and that you can help each person on that crew to achieve their full potential. And so the boss is meanwhile, my, this, this boss I had who was you know, out to get me, so to speak, and uh, proved that I couldn't make it. Um, it was hard because he was sowing seeds of discontent in the crew because he was constantly undermining me, even though we were getting the job done. And so finally, one day I noticed he backed off. And the reason he did is because like, like months or years later, I found out that a senior enlisted person on the ship who was a uh, chief petty officer, so like a senior leader for, for the kind of ship the unit we're on, he had gone up to that captain and closed the door of the office and said, Captain, you've got to back off our, our commanding officer because she's doing a good job and you're, uh, it's bad for morale on the crew because they can't figure out why you're undermining her when everything's going so well. And the captain had said, well, okay, I guess if this enlisted person who works for her has come up here and advocated for her, then she must be okay. So I'll back off. Well, and my life was miserable. Meanwhile, meanwhile, miserable. Cause I had this bad boss who was just out to get me and there was no leadership development there or was there, <laughs> I was learning a lot and all of a sudden he retired and I and I learned that he retired because the Coast Guard had not selected him for promotion to the next level. So in the Coast Guard or the military, any, any branch, you've got to keep moving up. So you can't really get ahead because you're going at the same pace as everybody, but you can get not picked to keep going up. And he had gotten not picked and retired. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'd have my, my resignation letter written, ready to, to turn it in because I was so um, demoralized if this is going to be the Coast Guard, I was about 29 years old and my first command assignment. And I was having this kind of a time with my boss. But man, what a lesson. I gotten tunnel visioned into thinking, I've got a bad boss. My life sucks. I'm going to quit. And I didn't look up to see the bigger picture. I didn't notice that there could be allies around me. I just got too tunnel visioned and focused on myself. And what a life lesson that was to me, not just learning from a boss who wasn't that great, but learning that I had so much control and so much power that I had, that I had not 
tapped into. And I just um, let it all pass me by. So I think that it's really, really important for people to recognize that these challenging times you're going to face in your career are temporal. They're going to pass and you can learn incredible amounts about yourself and human nature and how to be a better leader and how to succeed by putting up with those hard times and growing through them. I'm so smiley. That petty officer, I want to just give him a hug because that's the example of being part of the solution, right? The privilege to have a voice where the not so enlightened boss, you know, would, would listen, right? Could influence. And then going to the office, knocking on the door and saying, Hey, this isn't serving us. And I just want to shout out to listeners, you know, all of us have that ability to be advocates for others. And uh, wow, Sandy Mm. made the huge difference for you. And you know, your podcast is say it skillfully. And my goodness, this, this enlisted person who um, was kind of senior for, for the team that we had a small team, but he had the moral courage to go up there and he had to speak and advocate on my behalf as an ally for me in front of this person who much senior who could have who could have uh, ruined his career. So I think that had finding your voice. So that enlisted man had the moral courage to find his voice to speak up for me where I couldn't find my voice is the is the captain. I'm more experienced um that's more senior than this person who worked for me, but yet I couldn't find my own voice. So I do think people, it's, there's two things to, I think to celebrate Molly, that you just said to celebrate that, that um, enlisted man who stood up for me, but also we should be better at celebrating ourselves and realizing there's power inside there and we need to tap into it. Yeah, it's fantastic. So can, you know, you just kind of fling out there, you know, commanding a ship, just for our listeners, like what, what does that mean? You know, and just give us a visual, like how big is the ship and what are you doing? <laughs> so that ship I talked about, I was um, a younger officer. I was about 28, 29 at the time. It was a 140 foot ice breaking boat up on the great lakes. And we were on in Sault Ste. Marie. So near Lake Superior, and we were helping to escort iron ore carriers, thousand foot ore carriers that get um, iron from the, the, the mountain ranges in Wisconsin and take it down to Indiana to the steel mills to turn into cars <laughs> for us to drive. So it was a really exciting job to break ice in the wintertime for those big ore carriers. You felt like you were really doing meaningful work. And you had, as a captain, you're, um, you're in charge. And a lot of times today, there's this talk about you know, being in teams and you need to, um, everybody has to be nice and get along and agree on everything. And I'm like, no, there needs to be one person who's the final decision maker. So you need to collaborate, cooperate, you know, all those good C words, but consensus is not your friend. So as captain of a ship, I didn't lead based on consensus of what my crew wanted to do that day. I'm like, Here's, you know, we're going to talk about how to get this mission done. We're going to all put our, our thoughts on the table and then we're going to have the best way to do it. And I'm the captain. I'm, we're going to decide and we're going to proceed with a mission. So I think that um, when you're a captain of a ship at sea, you have less um, 
influences from the outside. It's not like being in an office where there's people all around you. And you really have to have confidence in yourself. So I had to learn how to develop that confidence. And there's a whole story behind that too. It doesn't just come. I was very unconfident and learned to develop it step-by-step because you're going to have to, as captain of a ship, have the confidence that your crew will believe in you and trust you and respect you as a leader because you're asking them to put themselves in danger every day when you're navigating on the waterways uh, in arduous conditions, uh, blizzards and storms uh, that hit that hit the ocean of the Great Lakes. So they've got to trust, you've got to trust everybody up and down the chain of command, so to speak. And you have to earn that trust. Uh, so I think that's a crucial point that people don't think about that goes into commanding or leading a big team or a ship at sea is building trust and earning respect. That's what it's all about. Okay. We have to dive deep here. Unconfident <laughs> becomes confident. No blowing through the hair. Let's just lean <laughs> into this. And I know there's some very dramatic, I'm sure stories. So Sandy, just take us through, you know, like what it was <laughs> like. And I, I could imagine the feeling of knowing that you need people to trust you and deep, deep, deep down one, you might not exactly be a hundred percent sure yourself. So take us through that. <laughs> so when I was first commissioned back in 1982, four years out of the, I'd been in the Coast Guard Academy for four years, came out with my, my, my bachelor of science degree and my commission as an officer in the Coast Guard, went to the Coast Guard icebreaker glacier in Long Beach, California. And within a few weeks, we were sailing on a six month uh, um, trip to Antarctica. Antarctica is the South Pole where we break ice to support the scientific research mission down there in McMurdo. It's run by the National Science Foundation, the Navy and the Air Force now have a role down there. So we went taking this great big ship, 310 feet long, um, designed to go across the ocean all the way to Antarctica and break ice to clear the channel so that supply ships can get in and supply the base in Antarctica. So I had to qualify on the bridge or the pilot house of the ship to drive the ship and be in charge of the whole ship's movements for uh, a four hour watch period. Um, When the captain of the ship, who's in we talked about being the captain, how you're ultimately responsible for everything on the ship when that person wasn't on the bridge. And I was one of the only women on the ship. And there was a crew of 200. I think there were 20 of us women, uh, two officers and the rest enlisted women. And I had just graduated from the academy and I didn't know anything about my first duty, first assignment ever. And I'd already started out just being inherently shy and unconfident like I said earlier, and the sports helped me develop that confidence a little bit. Playing with boys, my brothers helped me to get more confident, but it's a journey. If you're a person listening, who's not confident, who's shy, don't expect like you're going to listen to this podcast or anything else. And all of a sudden you're a bastion of confidence. It's a journey and you should celebrate that journey. So the next step in my journey was trying to qualify at this watch station And keep in mind, it was back in 1982 and things have changed, but there was different leadership style in that time. So I was learning all the competencies of standing this watch up there where you had to give orders of the helmsman, the lookout, different people who help run the ship uh, while it's underway. And I wasn't qualifying after, you know, a couple of weeks, a few weeks, you're expecting that you've done all your competencies and you're going to have your boss 
recommend your you to the captain of the ships that you be qualified to stand the watch on your own. I was breaking in with other qualified watchstanders every four hour watch. Well, finally, one day I went to him, my boss, and I said, hey, I feel like I've gotten all the competencies. I've gone through the list and checked everything off. I can do all the jobs. Why can't I qualify? And he just didn't have an answer for me. And so I pressed him on it. And he said, I know what it is. He says, I'm not going to qualify you till you stand on that bridge like John Wayne with a six gun in each hand barking orders. And John Wayne was an action hero back in the 1970s and 80s. And that was his, my boss, who was a man, his vision of a competent leader was somebody who stood on the bridge and barked orders um, like he was in control. And while my style was more quiet, I would ask people to do their jobs and they willingly complied. Uh, so I, I couldn't, I could not bark orders. No way. I wasn't born to bark orders. It wasn't in my nature. It wasn't me. It was somebody else. It was, I couldn't be John Wayne. So I really worried about this. I went away <laughs> distressed because I'm like, my gosh, I can't make a career on the Coast Guard unless I bark orders like John Wayne or this action hero. So, but you know, after a day or two of thinking about it, I'm like, okay, I can do all the parts of the job I got to do. My boss wants me to be an action hero. I know what he really wants. He wants command presence. He wants me to be more confident, to, to project the confidence that goes with the, com the competence. So as soon as I, as that clicked in my mind, I must've given off the confidence projected the confidence to go with my competence because I got qualified and oh my gosh, did I learn a lesson? So the competence without the confidence is nothing. They're two sides of the same coin or it isn't enough. And you need both to succeed. You can't uncouple them. And I think sometimes women are minorities who feel like they're competent. They've got all the jobs down. Um, they're doing the job, but they're not getting promoted. And there's a man next to them who gets promoted. Well, you know what? Maybe it's not discrimination. Maybe it's just because that woman's not projecting the confidence to go with her competence. And so was it really the boss's fault? I'm just being playing devil's advocate here. Or should, should people who want to succeed look at whether they're projecting the confidence that you need? And if you're not confident in yourself, how can you be confident in the people working for you? Are you going to be hard on them because you don't have the self-confidence and you're always a perfectionist and you're, you're hammering your people because you want them to be perfect or you want them to be just like you, like my boss wanted me to be just like him. If you don't have that self-confidence, you're never going to be a leader or achieve your full potential as a good leader. So that's a story of how I took the next step, step in becoming more self-confident. I love it. I, I love your, your openness just to be like, you leave, you're like, oh my God, I, I can't stay in the Coast Guard because I can't be not true to myself. And this is where I'm just so proud of you because the recognition that that's not being true to yourself and then, you know, the, the inner struggle, I could imagine 48 hours, like, what am I going to do here? You know, and then having <laughs> the, I could feel like the switch clicked. Right. But I think mm. that's one of the things that really drew me to you is the, the courage to, to just say, Hey, it's, it's not me. And I can find a way to get the mission and the job done in a way that's true to myself and help others 
know that that's possible. I mean, that's the kind of change leaders we need out there, folks, mm-hmm. right? Because we need that ability to show what different could look like to take any fear around that being different out and have people give us the chance. And then, you know, listen, you just privileged for the opportunity. We may fail, but at least you had the chance to put it out there and be a positive mm. force for change. Stanley, talk to us about, you know, the 20 women, 200. Is there, was there a tight female community like behind the scenes? What do you guys do? A lot of mentoring. Was it kind of each for her own? A little bit about that dynamic. Oh, each for her own in those days. There might be a little bit of women taking care of each other, but you're talking 1980s. So, so much has changed. So I was molded back in those decades before, right as I was born in 1960. Title IX came along in in, in, uh, 1972, the Equal Rights Amendment in 1973, All the service academies, including the Coast Guard Academy, opened their doors to women in 1976, following all that women's rights movement. So, you know, things have changed so much today. And I wish that more women could see how it was back in those, you know, the early days when I first joined the Coast Guard. Um, And we've come so far, we're, we're a different society now, and there is so much more opportunity But in those early days, women were competing, so sort of. And it sounds crazy because now women are so much advocates for each other. But in those days, no, there was competition. And I don't know what drove this, but it was, you know, perverse, certainly, because you would hope that women would be mentoring each other. Some of the women, and I I know some of the stories, some of the women in the early days thought that if they mentored other women, they would be accused of favoring their their gender favoring other women so they were even harder on us to to try to disprove that belief that some men might have had so it kind of was crazy and and um, we've moved beyond that so yeah in those in those early days it was even harder because the women weren't really supporting each other yeah like the unsad face Ugh. brutal um talk um there's so many directions that that we can go here the um you know, you, you've seen, you, and folks have heard here, right? When people just don't believe women belong, period. Um, your experiences fast forward to today. I'm just curious about, you know, what what are some of the things that people can do to be the change, to bring about environments where really everybody, you know, has a chance at the opportunity and can step mm-hmm. up. You know, we call this level the playing field, but, mm-hmm. you know, I know you talk um, to lots of different people, but, you know, very practically speaking, you know, what could someone who's listening, whether you're the leader or whether you're in the bowels of the organization, you know, how can each of us be more a part of the solution um, mm-hmm. to create that kind of space? Mm-hmm. That's a, a good question because we talk a lot about leveling the playing field. It's like this um, whole cliche that's been out there for decades now. We all want to level playing field. Well, you know, I don't think the playing field of life is ever going to be level. And um, I think some of this, um, uh, some of these efforts we have in society nowadays with with um, equity and stuff is to try to level that playing field. And really what we have to do is learn how to navigate the playing field. So when I was on that iceberg or going to Antarctica, the I couldn't part the sea of icebergs like 
Moses, you know, just with a command. I want a, a, um, a level ocean here. I don't want icebergs in my way. So there's always going to be an unlevel playing field where things are different for different people. You have different journeys, different paths, you have different obstacles. And that's what's the beauty of our, of our, of our human uh, race is that we all are uniquely different with uniquely different challenges. So what though bosses can do something to help this people succeed on these unlevel playing fields. And then people, individuals can do something. A lot of times we're creating an expectation in society I see today where the individual needs to sit there on the playing field and the, the coach or the boss is going to make everything perfect for that person. So all they have to do is just roll right down that field. No, no effort needed, no practice, no sweating or nothing. Just clear it all of all the obstacles so you can just, you know, and... <laughs> And, and no, here's what the boss should be doing. The boss should be looking at the team and the individuals on that team and saying, okay, where's my talent? And there's going to be different positions on that uneven playing field of life. And so there's going to be people that are sitting there on that team who've got all manner of skills, but there is a place for them in the game so they might be a forward or a guard or they're in the outfield or they're the pitcher, depending on their skills and abilities. The good coach, the good leader is going to look at each individual where that individual can fit, teams they can be part of, pairings they can make so that everybody can succeed on that uneven playing field. If there's an obstacle, guess what? Now the individual, because the leader has been good at putting the team together, now the individual who's not um, going to get over that obstacle can rely on a teammate who can just give them a leg up over the obstacle because they've got strong arms and a strong back to lift them, or they can um, intercept something so it doesn't hit the person who can't catch that that fastball, right? So you have teammates who are looking out for each other, covering for different weaknesses, so you have a strong hole. Um, to navigate that uneven playing field. And it all starts with a leader who helps put together those teams. So I think that if you look at life as, yeah, the playing field is un uneven, but you know what? Between the players and the, and the coaches, we can make it work. And that's where real diversity is evident because if you all were the exact same kind of strong players, the certain characteristics of mind, body, and spirit, um, you just all be the same out there and there'd be something come at you where you needed somebody who was completely different from you, who could just roll in, uh, you know, uh, underneath all the tall guys or something and, and, and uh, grab a pass or whatever it might be. So I really think that if you look at the playing field of life from a different viewpoint, where everybody can succeed because good leaders are putting together good teams that, that harness the power of each individual. And then individuals all reach out a hand to meet their teammates where they are and help them all succeed and look to cover for the weaknesses and um, amplify the strengths. Look at that. Well, that's a recipe for success. And then you can all go on your merit. Then you can all contribute in a way that contributes merit to the to the solution and you don't have to feel like you're creating a double standard for somebody to give them, you know, a pass because they can't play. No, you're bringing them all onto the field and they're all doing their part, but you're making a role for them that they can do. Uh, I love your shift of the paradigm. It is very 
impactful. And what is so great is it becomes an empowering thing. Oh, I can complain about the unlevel playing field, or I can do something to help us navigate it, work through it and be better for it. And I love it. Oh my gosh. Fantastic. Um, we, uh, one of the things that, uh, I read and that I think you really lean on is our own wellness and, just taking care of ourselves, you know, emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, a few words, Sandy, on maybe how you learned that or, and some thoughts perhaps for listeners. Absolutely. So man, my 40 year career was arduous. Like I said, I had to build my confidence one step at a time. I had to learn leadership skills one at a time. It was a journey of 40 years. And I would always tell my cadets when I was superintendent at the Coast Guard Academy, and um, as your listeners will have picked up now, I was a cadet from 78 to 82. I came back as superintendent from 2011 to 15. And I would tell those young cadets when I was superintendent, because I had been one, uh, they look at me and they would say, ma'am, we can never be you. We would never be you. You're too senior and we're just cadets. And I'm like, I was you one day. So it's a 40 year journey. And I had to learn how to keep my wellness. I didn't just all of a sudden, you know, find myself able to um, get through the arduous long hours that are required sometimes when you're at sea and you don't have any rest. You're, for instance, um, I'm out there as captain of a 210 foot ship off the coast of um, New York City after 9-11. So the nation is still in a high state of alert um, a couple of ships like mine are out there intercepting and um, boarding all these great big commercial merchant vessels coming in from all over the world because New York's a huge port. But we've just had the Twin Towers um, blown up and toppled. And now we're thinking, could a big ship have like a dirty nuclear bomb hidden in its cargo, some other threat to bring in to attack New York City by sea. So we're out there. Um, there's no recipe card for how we do this patrol or boarding every ship we can see that's coming in that has any kind of intelligence that it might be originating in a port that could be suspicious or whatever. And my crew, all of a sudden, you know, after a few weeks of this, I'm noticing, wow, we're just getting exhausted. And I'm starting to see that I, as a leader, have to step back and say, what can we do to make sure we stay capable so that we're able to do our mission and keep America safe and secure despite the um, overwhelming mission and the exhaustion. So I um, realized that we've got a triangle, a, a three-legged stool of um, functions we got to perform on the ship. We've got to do the mission, so operations or the mission, which is boarding these boats. Then we've got to do training because if we don't keep training, keep doing our drills and our, keep our readiness up, we're not going to be ready to respond if the ship catches fire or we have a flood. And then there's crew rest. And who thinks about the rest part? We throw that out the window every time. We're just like, we're going to operate more. Yeah, we'll fit in a little bit of time for training. But most of us in the corporate world know that you cut short training half the time too. It all goes to the bottom line or getting the mission done. I'm like, I gather my crew on the um, common space, which we call the mess deck where they all eat. And I said, look, I'm giving you guys an order. <laughs> you have to balance these three things, our operations, our training, and our crew rest. We're going to do fewer boardings. You're going to um, make sure people get their sleep. And we're going to make sure we put 
more time we've been doing on the mission into our training. And so they needed to hear that from me because otherwise the, the mid-level leaders were going to be just hard out on that mission. We're called to duty. We're Coast Guard. We're always ready. We're going to board every ship that comes in. We would have exhausted ourselves. So we had that triad of operations, training, and crew rest. And then I started to realize there's four kinds of exhaustion. You can be physically exhausted, mentally exhausted, emotionally, or spiritually exhausted. Because I was seeing this exhaustion in my crew. And so I was starting to realize it. Some guys were stressed because they weren't getting sleep. They're physically tired. Some guys are mentally stressed because of the burden of thinking, is there a nuclear bomb on one of these ships that I'm going to be boarding and get blown up? Uh, emotional stress because there's a conflict with a, with a you know, in tight birthing areas, you're all sleeping, 30 people to a common space. Emotional stress of just uh, personal interactions or spiritual stress because you you're losing touch with, you don't have your regular church because you're underway for six weeks at a time or whatever you might have for spiritual connection. And so I found there's power in learning this a lever. If you're um, unbalanced in either of those four domains of wellness, slant, exhaustion, you can um, try to work the lever. So if you're physically exhausted, maybe take a, a mental break to read a book after you get off the watch, you're standing or whatever, or maybe reach into yourself and look at your spirituality and renew yourself from the inside out. So, and maybe that's enough because I know we don't have much time, but there's a whole thought on wellness that people, leaders should really dig into what they think about wellness. It's a powerful responsibility of every leader to make sure their team maintains their wellness. Yeah, I love it. And this is, uh, I know for you, it was not an optional event and good for you to lead from the front on that. Uh, let's segue to the Say It Skillfully part of the show because I know how passionate you are about helping people use their voice in a positive and productive way. So I'm wondering whether it's your own story or a challenge you see others have, uh, what's on your mind? There's so many examples here. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna give two quick ones. So first of all, I'm gonna give this one because I was really senior. I was an admiral on the Coast Guard. So that's um, a senior executive C-suite level for the private sector. Here I am, superintendent at the Coast Guard Academy, or you call that president of a, of a college. And um, I still have, though, people in my chain of command because we're in the military. So I've got the boss who runs the Coast Guard and, uh, and the commandant and the vice commandant, which is basically the president and CEO and the, um, say, the COO. And so I decide to add a um, line of effort to my um, to my organization. So I decide to bring the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration officer candidates up to the Coast Guard Academy from where they had lost their, their training grounds at the Merchant Marine Academy in Kings Point, New York. I invited them to join our officer candidate school program. This is bringing a whole nother agency to the Coast Guard Academy. It's bringing a whole nother set of trainees up to the Coast Guard Academy to join what we already had as an established training program. But it was a big deal. And I did it all without telling my boss. <laughs> so um, not only was I not skillful in trying to add a new line of business to the Coast Guard Academy, which I think was a great thing, and it was, um, but I didn't give my boss the benefit of explaining that to him. 
And thank God my boss was um, a, very understanding and had some questions about it, but <laughs> forgave me my indiscretions. And, uh, and today we, we are a joint training center and we train all Coast Guard and uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration officer candidates uh, right there at the Coast Guard Academy. So that was unskillful to, to take um, such a big step without, um, and I just got caught up in it, you know, and how great this was. And, you know, people want to lead and, and have their autonomy and, and uh, make the decisions, but there's a point at which you have to understand that you've got to talk and communicate what you're doing to get the support of those either above you or below you. And I didn't do that. Another example is um, when I was senior, um, this is a place where I think I did something better. <laughs> the first example was a failure of communication on my part, but I had learned a lot about communication. Being a, an introverted, quiet person, I think that you can, there's a power in your ability to communicate because you have to be more skillful with your communications if you're not an extrovert. So if you're an introvert, you gotta be more skillful because the extroverts are gonna out talk you every time I, from my point of view. <laughs> so uh, when I was a, a senior officer, once again, an admiral in Coast Guard headquarters, so it's a um, corporate office, you're around these great big conference room tables and in the Coast Guard, at least, the senior people, sit up at the top of the table next to you, the Admiral, in my case, I was the Admiral. And then way at the bottom of the table, you've got the really junior people who do all the work <laughs> and they, pre they present all the research, the effort to their bosses who then water it down or, you know, brief it up and give it to the, the Admiral at the top of the table, which wouldn't be me. But I would know, cause I'd been there that those uh, junior people had done all the work and really knew and had opinions that might be valuable to me. So at those big conference meetings, they were never going to raise their hand and say, Admiral, you should know this. There's a critical thing here that, that I need to tell you because they would not want to say that in front of their boss. So I would start the meetings and I would say, hey, I'm going to, sure, I'm going to hear from the senior people who are briefing me today, but I want to also hear from people around the table because you each have a viewpoint and a different perspective on this issue. And it's a big issue. And I get this one hour with you to make a, a decision that's going to impact the entire organization. And I am going to make that decision. I'm not going to kick it down the field, by the way. So I'm going to go around afterwards and ask every person what they think. And I would. And then the person who would never raise their hand would now, the space would be there. Their boss would know I was going to do this they would know they were going to get asked. So everybody had a chance to get their word in. And if the boss doesn't create that space, you will never hear the information you need to know to make that large decision that affects your entire organization. Fantastic, folks. Boy, if we could have folks just do that one thing overnight, the world would be a better <laughs> place. Oh my gosh. We could go on and on. And I'm looking at time. So I'm going to give you the final word here and just a quick um, a, a, a quick answer. What was it like for you to share your journey today? Oh my gosh, to share my, to share my journey. I just love being able to try to give back leadership lessons to help people so that my book, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Uncharted Waters is my way of through lessons and stories, take all that I learned in my 40 years, which is a journey, a growth journey from cadet to admiral and help other people to realize you got to start at the lower level. You're going to go 
on whether you stay with the same job or not. You're going to go on in your life and your career, and you're going to have life leadership lessons, career leadership lessons. I try to include all that in in, um, my book and in today's talk to help other people to navigate their journey and realize that the icebergs, eh, you can go around them. It might not be able to go through them, but you can find ways to navigate and be true to yourself and believe in yourself and be yourself and be bold. And if you maybe hear from me, maybe it will give you the confidence to be bold, to believe in yourself and to become the best leader you can be. I love it. Sandy, what a treat. I appreciate you for sharing generously, inspiring us to make a positive difference. Thank you for your service, for breaking ice and glass um, and showing what it means to lead in uncharted waters. You know how to reach me if I can be of help. And I thank you for doing more than your fair share for being part of the solution. You take good care. Thank you, Molly. It's been an honor to be here today. We'll cross paths again soon. Okay, folks, my thought for the week from Sandy's book, it's an anonymous quote, what consumes your mind controls your life. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Sandy's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.